everyone, welcome back to the Theater Here in Apologetics. As always, brought to you by you with your support on Patreon.com. Joined by Josh Yen. I'm sure if you've, if you've been on this channel before, you know Josh, the Apologetics for All YouTube channel. We're going to be talking about his book, uh, Christianity for All, right, right here. Josh, how's it going? It's going great, thank you. You know, I'm so used to being like the one like reacting things with you, but now I think the time is, has come for me to actually be interviewed on your channel, so <laughs> that's a change. Yeah, I've been trying to do a lot more like reaction videos recently, and I always just, always just, it, I feel like, I feel like we just met well. Um, you have a lot of great insight, but I was like, well, I should talk to Josh. Josh book. Um, for like, for like a formal interview, interview because you, know, you kind of did, did write a book, so it's kind of a big deal. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I guess uh, I could return the favor sometime soon, but we'll see how that goes. <laughs> well, I'm a long ways away from writing a book, so so we'll see how it goes. Uh, um, but um, just to start off, I mean, we we can I think we can skip the who are who are do you do because because I'm sure if you're listening to this channel, you know you know who Josh is. Would you talk about like um Christianity for all and the and the book and kind of like what like what got you all started in, in, in this endeavor? I actually got started with the book. Right? Basically, when I kind of, because I've always liked writing books when I've grown up for some reason. It's like, I, I used to write a bit more fiction. It was like fantasy. It was, um, I guess I was inspired by Lord of the Rings a lot throughout mm. my life. It was Lord of the Rings then and then Dostoevsky and Nietzsche now. But it's like, I always loved writing fantasy novels and trying to represent like ideas through fiction. But then I guess I soon, sometime in my life, I was like, I, I had like some some stuff happened in my life and I was like, okay, now it's better for me to commit my life to Christ. And I talk a bit about that in the book. It's like, well, I, someone joined my school and I was like, well, he's not living a, quite a good Christian life. And then by, by critiquing his life, I realized that a lot of the criticisms I raised against him also applied to myself as well. And that just shocked me a lot because I realized that not only do, does he have a lot of problems? I have a lot of problems as well. And and I had to do a significant amount of things in order to improve my relationship with God. And I think that just really motivated me to write the book to really help other people also like really think about their own walk with Christ because it's very easy, I think, when, especially for me, because I, I grew up in a Christian family to say, well, I'm a good Christian. I went to church every day. I, I did like X, Y, and Z. There's this massive list of things you could tick off. But, but that was just kind of like Jesus' critiques of the Jews, right? Or like the Pharisees. They would do the entire list, but they lost that relationship with God by doing that list. And I could do that list, but I would lose that relationship with God. And, and that's really what I was trying to start off with the book. And, and I started writing a bit. And I, when I first started writing, it was really heavily based on theology. But after I did the first draft, I then went on and and also that I was growing my interest in philosophy and apologetics at that time. So I added a bit of philosophy at the end of it. And after that, I also added other things when the more I talked with other people, I was trying to figure out in society for like youths, for teenagers, and just for people in general, what are the main issues of contention? And, and by interacting with a lot of friends and other people like that, I, I was able to understand or know more about every different approach of people. And that was kind of how and also apply that to the book to make it perhaps the not exactly in-depth guide but at least a very a broad guide to just cover the issues that most that might come up and most likely would come up for a Christian in their life and that's kind of what I try to do with the Christianity for All book. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I appreciate your book. Your book because it kind of gets into like kind of like a lot of the like big issues in in Christianity today, whether whether it's sexuality, or, like the abortion debate, but also like into like apologetics with like God existing and singing. Um, um so could you talk a little about like the first section where you kind of get into idea of like this false versus ideal Christian? I think it's a good thing, good thing, kind of start off with, and it was an interesting way to start the book. Um, so could you just dive into that a little bit? Definitely. So I think the false Christian and the true, because it's always, I've always had this very, like, there's this really big discussion which goes on in my mind. It's like, well, what exactly is a false Christian? What exactly is a true Christian? Because I think we could all start off from the approach or the understanding that not all Christians are like, well, no Christian is good in the sense that we all are fallen people. So we have to really find a line between what is a Christian a true Christian and what is a false Christian. And how I like to see it is it's where your heart lies because while we shouldn't expect ourselves to be perfect and good in that sense, you should also try to focus to be, you should focus to have your heart or you focus your life on God. And by by doing that, I think you you would become or draw closer to God and that's a true Christian. But then what is the false Christian? Because a lot of times we can say, well, False Christianity is the wolves in sheep's clothing kind of Christian. It's the, so it's a deceiver, the perhaps the antichrist who snuggle, sneaks his way into society and tries to tear people away from God. However, I don't think that's the necessarily the best place to go around doing it. Instead of going that route, the extreme like antichrist kind of the, the opposite of the church, the opposing person of the church. I think it's a problem which prevails in society and within the church. It's not necessarily them trying to actively trying to be a bad Christian per se. It's more like them trying to be, it's them trying to be like their hearts do not recognize the Christian message and they haven't Mm -hmm. really questioned themselves enough to see, well, am I truly a Christian? And that's where I think the false Christian problem comes in. And that's something I fell into in the past. I thought that by growing up in a Christian family, that by doing these lists, I would be automatically by default, a very good Christian. But in reality, it's it's quite clear. And what's quite clear after I studied the situation and, and examined myself, I realized that clearly was not the case and that I had to undergo significant change in my life to move towards the, the properly how to live out a more Christian life. So that's kind of where I start off the book, because I think at the end of the day, and I know some people like disagree with me on this, I think who is it? John disagreed with me on it a bit, but I'm, at the end of the day, I think that as Christians, we have to start off with the relationship with Christ and build up, up upon that, hmm. upon that relationship. And and that's why I said, let's start this book with the Christianity and build it up to the philosophy and the apologetics. Hmm. Yeah, no, it, it's interesting. Interesting. I think about it, like, about it, like like being a Christian starts with like being born again, as Christ says. Like, um, so it's interesting. It's an interesting, interesting part because then I, I almost went, like with with John, like, well, you need like the philosophy or like the reasoning to believe or things like that to kind of get you to like you to like even want to follow Christ. But I like I like how you started because it's a good um kind of bring to this thing um, and then the, the interesting thing that for me was you kind of dived into like the biblical morality um um and i'm sorry no i'm just no, i'm skipping ahead challenges of being, of being a christian next um so could, it's like what was going on there um and there's two different different issues talked about um dealing with temptation and and uh persecution so i don't know if you want to like split them up bit by bit or kind of like what you're what you're here uh, uh but it was in transition here here going from uh what it means to be a christian to like 
actually like live living now. So, so I'm curious what your thoughts are. And, and is my audio good? Because I saw Susan was saying that um, the weird sound. So I don't, so I don't hear anything weird and weird on your end, Josh. I think it might be that glitching thing. I'm not sure exactly how you can fix it, but I, I'm actually not really sure. I, I could understand what you're saying. So I think that's completely fine. It's just there might be a bit of glitching there a bit, which I'm not sure how where that would come from. Uh-huh. A weird echo. Well, I'll figure it out. But uh, feel free, feel free to um wherever you, wherever you want to go. Just just off your mind. Sure. Yeah. That's it. Good. So basically, I I start off with talking about the issue of temptation because, in my opinion, or at least in my church, at least temptation is some of those issues which you talk about, which is not really fully discussed in the in like the pastor's sermons or something like that. I mean, maybe it's just my pastor, and I don't blame him for it. In my book, I say, well. It's one of those issues which you need a lot of time to talk about. And it's one of the really big problems about Christianity as well. It's like we can't talk too much about it because the moment we do, it's like the sermon either goes from absolutely from like a maybe a half an hour to 45 minutes long sermon to an absolutely massive sermon to talk about. And it's also a very uncomfortable sermon, which might not be the best place to start off with. And the same goes for persecution. So I thought, well, temptation is such a big problem that we all Christians have to face. However, it's not talked a lot about within the church, or at least in, the, in my community in, in China or in Hong Kong. So I thought that's the best place to go next because we all struggle with the temptation. And, and I don't think, I, and I think I could make quite a general statement in the sense that we all fall to temptation as well on quite a frequent basis. That's, that's one of the problems of us being human, but that's not because of us being human. A lot of the times we fall to temptation because we're imperfect and we're not strong enough to face that temptation. And as a result of that, I thought, well, what are the best ways to face temptation? Well, from my experience, I've always felt that the best way to face temptation is always to be true to yourself. And what does that mean? That is to, well, you, you are true to yourself by realizing that you're not strong enough. And that's always the best place to start off with a lot of things. You, you start off with being humble and admitting that you're not good enough to face it alone. And that turns you to reflection and that turns you to strengthening yourself. And that turns you to turn into God, who through God, you can resist the temptation. You can fight that temptation. And by praying and by emphasizing that prayer without ceasing idea, I think it really helps your fight to get temptation. Of course, you wouldn't necessarily defeat temptation because it's going to be there all your life. Like it's impossible to say, well, I'm going to pray to God and now all the temptation is going to go away. Like that's not exactly what's going to happen. It's like, well, you have the temptation, you'll have more strength to face it. Yes, you would fail, but I also provide some solutions in the book where I say, well, there are solutions to temptation. It's not the end of the world. You can overcome it at times. And if you fail, you can respond to it in a positive way. You could use the temptation as a lesson to strengthen yourself. And if you fail, you have you fall into sin. Also use that sin as a lesson to teach you how to resist it next time and improve yourself from, from there. So that's basically what my thoughts were on temptation. And I could talk about uh, persecution now, but but if you have anything more to build on off that. Yeah, yeah sure. Um, how's my audio now? I think it's a bit better. There's still a bit glitching, but it should be all right. It doesn't really. All right, I, know, I couldn't like connect my mic in the beginning. Um, um, we got on stream, stream here, and it was I don't know, no technology crazy. Um, but I'm curious with like temptation. Like it's just interesting, interesting idea of like 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 is that almost almost like that famous line in music? Like, I think it's like Katy Perry's like "What doesn't kill me makes me stronger." Uh, um, but then like, do you think it's a similar kind of way with temptation where we can kind of um when, when we fight temptation we can be, like stronger in our in our walk with Christ um in, in a sense. 
Well, I definitely think that overcoming temptation strengthens you in the sense that you would know how to fight it next time. I guess it's something like vaccination, right? You do a bit, you put in some like, I don't know what they put in you. I'm not too good at science. I think they put in some like vac- like some bacteria, dead bacteria, and then your your body learns how to fight. And then it's like, oh my gosh, now it's better now. It's like, mm-hmm. I faced the temptation. I know how it comes. Like I could face it the next time. And I do think it's true in some sense, but at the same time, it's like, Temptation is never good. Like just that it leads to good results. It doesn't mean that it's good in itself, I guess. I, and, and that's kind of like, t- it has ties in with uh, one of those like greater good theologies. It's like, yeah, there's mm-hmm. good, but then it doesn't make the evil good itself. It's like in the same way, the temptation makes you stronger, but it doesn't necessarily be good itself. Like you have to constantly fight. It. And I think a lot of the popular culture, and, and since you've raised the Kate Perry example, it's like, in my opinion, a lot of times in popular culture, the main problem why I see a lot of my friends falling into temptation is it's a di- it's the idea of the self-justification. It's like, mm-hmm. well, now that I, and this is the problem of the growing secularization of society. And it's, it's the idea that if by rejecting God, man becomes God. And of course, he does, man doesn't become God in the sense of the greatest possible being, but man becomes God for all purposes of the terms. In, or the lowercase God, it's like, well, he defines his own morals, he defines his own values, he makes his own values. And, and what happens is that is that when people fall into temptation, instead of realizing that they're wrong, following their conscience, what they do is that they turn that around and say the, the conscience that we face is actually a result for us to justify ourselves. And what happens is that by, by making themselves God, by defining their own values, they use their sins as a justification for themselves. And what soon happens is that their sins becomes good in the sense that, well, your sins are now your justification. Your mm-hmm. sins are become good for you. And that's why people fall very quickly into this, this cycle of I sin, I can repeat, I sin, I repeat. It's because they're trying to justify that sin in their lives. And, it, and of course, it's not just a problem of society, although I do think it is a bigger problem in society. It is also a problem with all of us in the sense that it's very easy to start. It's very easy, I think, to start justifying ourselves because there's always that temptation in our in our lives to think, "Well, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right." And by doing that, you soon start entering that cycle of "I'm going to justify my actions." Mm-hmm. But I think that by realizing that we should not justify ourselves and really turn back to the Bible, we do overcome that temptation and get out of that cycle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. And I'm tracking with you. Um, I do want to say we are going to be doing Q and A soon. In um, once we get once we get through kind of like Josh's book. So if you ask questions in super chats, um, things like that. Kyle was obviously asking the hard hard questions here. So here, so we're going to be doing some mental gymnastics, see yeah, all that stuff. Um, we're talk about the next section with like like persecution. Um, and like why you think think that's so important. Um, and an important part to add into your book here with terms of like the challenges of being a Christian. Christian. Yes, because I think a lot of times society, people like to play the victim mentality. That's the mm-hmm. first place to go to. And, and I know that some people get really annoyed when I say this, but it's very easy to play the victim. And I've done that in the past, and a lot of people have also done that in the past. But sometimes your victim mentality goes overboard in the sense that, and this is a, a Nietzschean idea, it's the idea of resentment, the people who are weak are jealous of the strong and then they hate the strong and try to crush the strong. And that's happened quite a lot of times in society. And you can look at it right now and you can say like, well, the Asian lives matter thing. And I think I could say more about it because I'm Asian myself. Like I don't think I would be ever accused of racist because I mean, 
how could I look in the mirror and be racist against myself? Like that wouldn't be too reasonable, but it's like, it's very easy for people to play the victim. And, and a lot of times in society, people play the victim to Christian beliefs when they are actually in the majority. Mm. And as a result of that, they twist things around and by playing the victim, they persecute the Christians who are actually in the minority. And, and that's a very common lie that I think has been told to people in school or in education and in society today, this idea that Christians or at least the conservative, well, I don't, the, these extreme conservative Christians are all pushing their morality on everyone else. They're, they're, mm. the, they're the master class and they're oppressing everyone else. Like if you look at history, that's the complete opposite. Christians for since the beginning of Christianity have been persecuted wherever they've went until the last like 100 years or 200 years or something like mm -hmm. that. And even now, if you look in China, right across the border from me, China's like, I think I was looking at some um, report, is one of the top five worst persecuted or even the top three worst persecution countries in the world. And that's one of the biggest nations in the world. It's like one mm -hmm. of your superpowers is persecuted Christians on a daily basis. And I hopefully I don't get locked up for the national security law here by saying it, but <laughs> we, we all know that we, we all know that there is some big problems facing Christians all around the world. And, and there's a lot of types of persecutions. Just now I've said there's the societal ones and actually the country ones. And I talk about these two in the book. I say, well, let's not talk too much about the country ones because, I mean, what exactly could my book help you in fighting against China who's persecuting you? I don't think you could go up to sea and say, well, I got Christianity for all. I'm going to I'm going to now <laughs> tell you to stop I'm, persecuting I'm, under, I'm invincible that I have this, this book in my hands. Like, no one can, can ever hurt me. So, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, that's I don't think that's where it's so I'm saying, well, how do you face societal persecution? And. And it's like, well, when people accuse you of, falsely accuse you of things, falsely accuse you of different beliefs, how can you face that? And I think the best way to face that is to just ask them really at their hearts whether they do actually think that you're persecuting them or are they following a na greater narrative? And if they're following a greater narrative, then I think that's a problem where you sometimes have to just say, step back, that's not, that's not my fight anymore, that's in their hands, that's on them, and kind of just wash your hands away from that conversation and leave because sometimes the most important things is of course you want to change your minds but if their minds cannot be changed it's not your job to actively change your minds you have to first of all focus on yourself in the sense that you have to improve yourself and if people don't appreciate that then they don't appreciate it you can't you can't focus on the other people who hate you you can't focus on other people who might look down on you because a lot of times people look down on you not because you're bad, but because they also feel that sense of resentment. They're mm -hmm. hating you not because of the fact that they don't like you or they think you're a bad person, but because their natural reaction to play the victim mentality to say, well, that guy is something different from us. I hate him because he's someone different. So don't always be very harsh on yourself. Like you might face persecution and it might be difficult. People might insult you, might lose a lot of friends. At the same time, you have to be able to march through that, carry on and realize that the hope that you have is not necessarily on this road, but with Christ. And by looking towards the image of Christ, you just realize how beautiful it is and how much greater it is than anything that you could possibly find on this world. Mm -hmm. One of the, one of the things that really helped me with me with the kind of like challenges of being, being a Christian is just always looking to Christ. Like growing up, I always thought it was just about like avoiding seeing sin. Um, but in truth, in truth, like in Christianity, it's like looking to Christ and just following Him. Um, and making Him Him supreme. So with with local morality, morality is the next section of your book, and this was, this was an interesting one. There's three different like 
non-controversial issue at all that no one ever ever talks about uh, complete sarcasm here with like the, the abortion debate uh male and female like gender identity and biblical biblical sexuality so do you kind of, kind of want to like be like go through these issues one by one we could start with like the pro-life debate because if you get bring bring like stylistic argument um for like the pro-life values so, so do you want to talk about like that that yeah so i i definitely start i, I wrote the i actually quite fun of it Surprisingly enough, I actually wrote the pro-life, like the ethics argument, and I thought that would be the end of the book. I actually wasn't mm-hmm. thinking about writing a section on God existing or not, because I thought that ethics would always be the fundamental core of the, or at least it's the face of the apologetics that we have to deal with, because yeah. that is where the critique is at most. So mm-hmm. I've, I've always thought that one of the biggest discussions that we face is the pro-life issue, because I think that it's it's very important that not only do we provide good arguments against the pro-choice arguments. I think there's very, very good arguments and very easy arguments against their arguments. I don't think it's any good or not. But I think it's also important for us to develop a good argument. And I think, well, what better place to start than start off with very simple principles and widely accepted principles like murder is wrong to demonstrate that abortion is wrong. Abortion being like a subset of murder in the sense that, well, abortion is, in, and this is my syllogistic argument, is abortion is a termination of a fetus, which is a living human being. Murder is the termination of a living human being from, from which it follows. If murder is wrong, then abortion is wrong. So I think I, I defend that syllogism by turning to modern science in the sense that, well, if you look at what makes a living human being, it doesn't only mean life processes, like actual life processes. It also means potential life processes. And the reason mm-hmm. for that is because, well, a lot of these processes, like which are carried out, and these life processes are movement, respiration, sense sensitivity, uh, growth, reproduction, and then like the excretion and nutrition. It's like, well, a lot of animals or things that we assume as living, like babies, cannot carry out most of these life processes. They can't reproduce. You can't expect like a one-year, one-day-old kid to like have a kid the next day. Like it's not physically possible. It's impossible for them to reproduce as a, in the same way. Like a lot of these potentialities are also focused on, are also like linked to like the abortion, the fetus case, right? Like the fetus has potential to carry out a lot of things. And they also have actuality to carry out a lot of things. Like there's a lot of places really early in their lives that they can actually feel stuff. They have sensitivity, like people have done UV scans, like done some ultrasound and some tests to say that they can actually interact with, they can interact with different sensitivities and things around them. So that's really crazy. And that's something that I thought, well, wow, there's actually a lot of scientific literature. To demonstrate that not only is a fetus a human being independent from their mother, it is also a very, it's a very alive thing that you can't just look at it and say, well, that's just a ball of cells. I mean, yes, it is a ball of cells. I mean, all humans are balls of cells at the end of the day, but Mm -hmm. it's like, well, that, like that thing's a living thing as well. It's, it qualifies as a living thing as much as most thing, most people do. Like your one day old cousin is also a living thing as much as that fetus. So it's like, well, where exactly do you draw the line there? And that's, kind of my question it's like well if abortion is wrong and abortion is a fetus murder is wrong and murder is wrong therefore abortion wrong it's a very simple argument i think and it's a very helpful one for most people mm, definitely um the, ne- the next thing you talk about is that is like a male female and getting into like gender identity um and this is a really, really like big issue now because you because you know like television vision and stuff it, it's, it's brought, brought up a lot um so you know talk about like kind of like the christian worldview in terms of gender identity and how you know how you can recommend approaching the issue yeah, well, I, I personally approach in the sense that 
what are gender identities? How are they defined? And I, of course, that's a philosopher talk, right? How is this defined? It is definitionally this, it's definitionally that. Where do we start off? But it's like, I think fundamentally that the Christian and the, I don't know how to call the people who believe in the, and the, I'll just call them the opposition for the sake of it, but the opposition and the Christian, we both we both like believe in the same thing, that it is a social construction. And that's where I build my entire critique off. If it is a social construction, what exactly does that mean? It means that it is created by humans to serve a certain purpose. And I'm saying, well, okay, that immediately from the definition of gender, gender identities as a social construction demonstrates that, well, they don't actually exist. So that's the first thing we could start off with. They're not explaining something in reality. Rather, they're explaining something. They're just a tool. And I could grant, and in the book, I happily grant that this is a very helpful tool. Anything which used to identify yourself is a helpful tool. The only question is, is that, well, is it on par with what they're actually claiming it to be? Yes, they're claiming it to be a social construction. But is the idea of male and female also the same level? of a social construction as much as it is uh, these extra gender identities. And my argument is no, because if we look at male and female, there's a lot of literature which demonstrates that there are two clearly defined roles. There is a, there's a powerful psychological, biological, and yeah, psychological, biological, and sociological literature and ideas behind the idea of a male and a female, which is not grounded for the other gender identities. And that's my main critique is that well, male and female have good and well-defined roles with stuff that you can scientifically and tangibly test in society. With all these extra genders, you can't test them. They're just things where you almost have to just trust their word for it. And when you have to trust their word for it, of course, you can use it. I mean, it's useful. But at the same time, it's like that level of proof would not be accepted in any philosophical discussion. Like if you had, if I argued for God the next day and said, I identified that God existed. Of course, that's perhaps not exactly what they're saying by their, their their arguments for the multiple gender things. But it's like, if you use that burden or that standard of proof for your arguments, I don't think anyone would possibly treat you seriously in philosophy if you use the same standard to prove your things. So, so I'm just saying, well, on my standard, that is unacceptable in the sense that that does not reach the standard of proof that I require. If we have that standard proof, which is a very modest one, I think, if that it doesn't reach that, you can still use it. But at the end of the day, you have to realize that it's not, it's, at the end of the day, it's not true. You cannot ground it and it's insufficient. There are better ways to turn to. Like, and I create the final thing, which is, I think, the scientifically based uh, male and female, which is based on the sociology, it's based on the psycholo psychology, and there's two de mm -hmm. well-defined roles there. And that's kind of my approach to gender identities. Yeah, yeah, it's right. And one of the things, like I read, I was reading a book called Holy Sixty by Christopher Yuen. And he, he talked. I was talking to my friends about, about this, um, because it, it's a big issue, at least where I'm from, about like about, like gender identity and like, and, like you know and all and all these things. And he talks about how like we should find our identity in Christ, not in any, not in any like label. Um, so it's an interesting, interesting thing. Uh, but let's keep on going because there's a lot of good questions here. So we'll kind of keep going through your book. Um, cool sexuality is the next section book. Um, and I'm in a couple of projects things. Do you want to talk about what's going on there? Yeah, I mean, homosexuality is one of perhaps the most difficult one, and that's why I stayed, left it to the end. And I use it to kind of demonstrate a principle that at the end of the day, we have to realize that morality is grounded in God. That's the first thing that I argue for. Morality is grounded in God, and 
in some sense, what we see of God is seen in the Bible, and that's reflected across. And since the Bible says it's wrong, it's wrong. And of course, there are other literature to defend it. And I do turn to that other literature in the sense that, well, it's not too practical. It, it leads to a lot of other things as well. But I think the fundamental thing that we have to realize is that what we see is what why are things right and wrong? And I think that's the fundamental thing that I want to develop here. It's a pseudo, it's a slight moral argument as well, but it's like, well, where do our moralities come from? They come from God. People have tried throughout history to ground moralities without God, but even an atheistic, well, seemingly atheistic person like Kant, he also turns back to God at the very end of the day, right? So you see, like, throughout literature, people actually realize that God ultimately is the founding of objective morals, which I think both sides actually believe in. And when we start from that, we realize that the arguments for God, and we realize that the Bible is indeed against homosexuality, not, not in the sense that it is like it hates it, but more in the sense that it is wrong. We realize that we have good reason to believe that it's wrong. And I think that's at the end of the day, one of the most important places to start with as apologetics. We first defend our court and then we defend and go into the other world as well and argue against other court. In my opinion, homosexuality is one of the issues where we defend our court. And since it is so controversial, we do not argue against it in a very active sense. And and what I mean by that, it's like most important thing is to get people to Christ. And if the Christian idea about homosexuality isn't like the is going to be a major stopping stone, it's it's most important, I think, in my opinion, to do or focus on other issues first and help them by accepting Christ first via other issues, like by appreciating the beauty of Christ and other things. By doing that, they, it comes around and they appreciate the appreciate the Christian morality as well. Like it's one of those places and from personal experience that is that comes under a lot of a lot of criticism and a lot of it's one of the most heated areas. And it's not like you're hiding away from the issue, but it's like that's not the most practical area to start off with by actually going out on the attack or like going out on the apologetic side over homosexuality. Yes, you can do that and you would do that, but that's later in the process if you got what I mean. Mm -hmm. And that's why in the book here I'm just saying give you the basic facts to defend Christianity and after that d defend why God is the grounding of morality. And that's like where I do what I do in the book is just saying, let's defend our grounds. Don't go out attacking unless you're very confident in it and you don't think people are going to hate Christians because of it. If you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that, that's great. And I appreciate that. Um, so we'll keep going, going. And two, two last section here, the end cl close the book, you kind of give the evidence for Christianity, which is interesting because like when I thought about like, like I'd write a, write a book and, you know, in the very, very early process of writing one, it's like, like I feel like I kind of want to start with, with that and get you know, like, what um, but you want to talk about, like the evidence for Christianity that you bring forth in the book or why, why I think, why I think Jesus from the dead? Well, it's actually quite a funny thing because I, when I first read the book, I never thought about writing the section at all. I was thinking this is completely <laughs> pointless. And, and the reason why I did that was actually because I didn't feel that people actually objected to Christianity because of whether God existed or not. I always felt <laughs> that people were Christian. Like this book either is focused towards Christians who already accept the existence of God or focused mm -hmm. towards atheists whose main critique criticism against Christianity is not whether God exists or not, but because they don't accept the consequences of God. And, and that's mm -hmm. why I kind of started off with the idea of morality, because that was more of the consequences of God rather than whether God exists or not. But, yeah. but then I also had a few conversations with other friends who, who did raise Christianity and whether God exists or not. So I thought, well, okay, I'm not going to go too in-depth here about the book. I'm not going to go too in-depth about the two arguments, but let's just give you some basic things. And 
And first of all, I turn to the resurrection, because I think that's always the abductive case. And in, the, in, in some sense, both of my arguments here are abductive. And I basically start off with the resurrection case, and I say, well, there are a few historical facts which can be demonstrated both from using the Bible and without using the Bible. You have Bible, you, you can defend the facts quite clearly. And also, if you don't use the Bible by using Tacitus, by using Josephus to dialogue with Typhro, I hope I pronounced that correctly, but you have a list of different mm -hmm. sources throughout history which supports these eight facts, which all, at the end of the day, points towards the existence of God. And that's basically the case that a lot of people raise, that William and Craig and these people raise. It's not the most original argument, but I do think it is perhaps one of the best ways to argue for the resurrection. And my argument is basically, if the resurrection is true, then, well, God exists. Like, if someone rose from the dead and they still say, well, that might just be a random chance that someone mm -hmm. rose from the dead, then I'm like, well, come on, guys. you have It has to be a bit better than that. Like, and like, there's no, what else do you want me to prove? If your standard proof for God's existence is like some guy rose from the dead who claimed to be God, that isn't God, then you're like, well, what exactly do you want me to do now? And then mm -hmm. from science to God, I basically raise a Kalam and, and with the scientific evidence. It's not the most in-depth discussion on the Kalam. I just like raise it, why the universe existed, or I mean, began to exist. And if the universe began to exist, it's most probable that there is a big, that there is a cause from causation. And well, that is most likely to be God. And that's kind of why I've discussed in the, the science to God section. It's basically the Kalam from scientific evidence. If you want me to discuss more about that, feel free to do so. But it's just like something that I, I just added on the back. It wasn't really, I want a major section here. It was just like, let's just add a bit of discussion here and just to <laughs> cover all the grounds at least, just in case yeah. someone comes up. Yeah, we'll go, go to q in a second, but I'm like, one of the things I was reading the book, I was like, why, why do scientific arguments instead of philosophical ones, like saying like the universe is like past finite instead of like past infinite? Like, what was what was, what was your thoughts on thoughts on that? Because I know you got a reviews on, on like your review on like Rasmus and Alex Malpass really recently on their dialogue with on Josh Joe Schmidt. So, so what, what scientific evidence um for the for the past finite of the universe? Because I fundamentally think that society doesn't really accept the philosoph philosophy things in the sense that they just they would rather like reject philosophy as this random high and lofty idea than to assess the, than to face, the, but they're, they're, they're more likely face the science because I think that philosophy is very good, but when you have a group of people who are focused on STEM all the time, like, do they really want to hear or think about the philosophy? It, because yeah, sometimes yeah. it is way too difficult for people, you know, like, and, and at the end of the day, most people who critique Christianity and the, most of the people who interact with you aren't the, aren't the, aren't the grand opies, aren't these massive thinkers of the yeah. world. These people are the everyday atheist or the everyday Christian. And, and the best way to start is science. The universe began to exist because of the Big Bang. That's more simple than saying, well, let's turn to a few paradoxes. Let's turn to a few conceptual arguments. And then let's turn to Zermelo Franco's set theory. And then their, their minds are blown. Like, it's not something that, like, is bad, per se, because they probably understand way more about science than I do. But it's like, well, science is perhaps the best place to start off with. And if they like apologetics, mm -hmm. then that's a place where they can go. But Or they like philosophy, that's a place they can go. But that's perhaps not the best place to start, in my opinion. It's like the science, it's more simple, more easy to understand, and more, mm -hmm. more widely accepted, if you got what I mean.
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so what we're gonna do is for about 25 minutes, five minutes we'll do some Q and Q and A, assuming there's still questions this whole time. Um, so the first question is, uh, how did you get interested interested in Dostoevsky? I, I can't even pronounce name. Dostoevsky or the, the Russian dude, whatever that Russian dude's name is. Um, what do you think he has? Think he has said young today. You've you've been interesting. I listened to one of the videos. I'm going. I'm starting to work through them on Dostoevsky. Um, but like, what are your thoughts on why he's so important? In my opinion, Dostoevsky is the most profound thinker. He's influenced my life as a lot. Him, along with Nietzsche, are perhaps the two greatest influences on my life. And I think the re and I got into Dostoevsky because I was doing a project with my friend. We were writing a dialogue, which I actually might publish. I have have the, the manuscript of the dialogue right next to me right now. I wrote a dialogue. I, it was meant to be a group project, but then he had to do something else. So I have a dialogue right here. It's called Zarathustra contra Alyosha which is basically a discussion between Nietzsche and, Dost and Dostoevsky through these two interlocutors. But we kind of had to do that for a project. So I, I got into Dostoevsky, I read Dostoevsky, and I just realized how profound the writings of Dostoevsky are because he really gets to the heart of the human issue. And it's like for Dostoevsky and as for Nietzsche, they don't worry about the existence of God. And that's perhaps why I might be of a different, I might be on the bit of the side of the apologetic circle. Like, and that probably explains why I am less worried about the existence of God rather than the why you should be a Christian kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, what Dostoevsky says is that what's the consequences of denying God? And and the funny thing with Dostoevsky, and I, and it's hard to talk about Dostoevsky without talking about Nietzsche, because they're basically, Nietzsche is seen as the biggest atheist in the world, but Nietzsche and Dostoevsky say exactly the same facts. The funny thing is that both Nietzsche and Dostoevsky say exactly the same things. They say exactly the same problems about the human predicament. And, and the only problem or the only place of discussion is really, well, how then shall we live? How, what should we go from whether God exists or not? If God is dead, what exactly is the result? And a lot of people love quoting Nietzsche by saying, God is dead, God is dead, God is dead. But then they forget to quote the next phrase of it, which is, must we not ourselves become gods to appear, to become worthy of it? It's like, well, it's very easy to say God is dead, but what exactly is the result of God is dead? The result of God is dead is actually well, we have ourselves to become God and and we have to create our own values. But that leads to absolutely horrible situations. And, and I think Dostoevsky pictures that perfectly. He, he has three main characters that you could focus on. Focus The first one you could focus on is Raskolnikov in Crime and Punishment. He kills someone because God is dead. There is no more. He kills the most detestable person. And then he kills the person and is crushed by his conscience. What Dostoevsky is saying is, well, Man has a conscience, which if you, you allow man to be terribly free, it will lead to terrible tyranny, both to the other people around them and also to themselves. Man with complete freedom would destroy themselves. The second person they talk about is Ivan. And Ivan is the guy who famously says, without God, everything is permitted. And, and by saying that, Ivan promotes his half-brother to kill his father. And his father and his half-brother kills his father and Ivan is crushed by the guilt of parasite because, yes, his half-brother is the one who actively killed his father. But where did that idea come from? It came from Ivan. And Ivan is like, well, I'm the one who promoted him. And he, he was truly the one who was guilty psychologically of killing his father. And that's the second consequence of atheism. If you lose, if you lose God, you also lose your morals as well. And to create your own morals would absolutely destroy you. And the last person is Kirillov, and I did a soliloquy on that recently. My acting is absolutely terrible, but I, I tried to do one anyways. And, it, 
And Kirillov is the most fascinating guy, and it's at the heart of the human issue. It's like, basically, Kirillov says, if God, if, if there is no God, then I am God. Because what, what Kirillov is saying is God is necessary and therefore he must exist. And when he says necessary, it's not some metaphysical necessity. It's what he says, God is necessary for human existence and meaning. But at the same time, the atheist says, well, God does not exist and cannot exist. And human history has done nothing but create God for it to, in order to avoid killing themselves. And that's what Kirillov says. And it's like, well, I mean, yes, God, I don't believe that man created God, but I do agree with the sense that God's, God's role is, is, well, God has given us meaning. And through that meaning, we can live. And that's why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus gives us meaning. He gives us the truth. And he gives us life. And through that, we are able to appreciate the human existence. That It's only through that lens of Christ that we can understand society. But then the problem with society, and that's the young people today, is that they've gotten rid of Christ. And with that, they've lost the way. And through losing the way, they've lost the truth and also lost the life as well. And that's why we live in a postmodern, post-truth, and a world which is headed towards self-destruction. And that's what Dostoevsky says, is that the problems of atheism is socialism. And he predicted Soviet Russia, and he also predicts society right now in demons. Society will destroy itself without God. And that's where Dostoevsky was wrong. He thought that in order to save themselves from destroying themselves, society would turn back to Christ. Only they didn't. Society has chosen to destroy themselves rather than go back to Christ. And that's why I think society... And Dostoevsky is very profound, and that's why I recommend everyone to read, to read Dostoevsky. I know I go on absolutely forever when I talk about Dostoevsky, <laughs> but that's essentially what Dostoevsky says. He's saying, well, Dostoy well, humans without God are terribly free. We need Christ to, in order to find a place for our lives, and we need Christ in order to ground our meaning and reality. And that's why we should turn to Christ instead of becoming the ubermensch, which ultimately leads to self-destruction. And that's essentially, yeah, yeah. I think, Dostoevsky summarized quite quickly. Yeah, that's right. And you've you've motivated me to read some Dostoevsky um some some <laughs> said um with regards to your point about um like this like using science at the end of your book, it's hard for him to get his atheist atheist uh perspective philosophy, genuine discipline. It is it is kinda like it seems like a lot of times, like especially like on online here, it's like oh it's oh it's philosophy, it's just science or something. But it's really like the two and the two are hand in hand in hand. Like there was this interesting interesting date with Eric Hernandez and Dilla Honey on um, the distance of the whole soul and and the, like one of the first the first things does is this this isn't a scientific question, it's a philosophical. And I was, was like, okay, maybe, but it's just it's kind of like kind of like the way of like like we we like it's philosophy versus science sometimes Christians and it, it shouldn't be that way. Um, but but Tika's bulldog bulldog says, "Who are your favorite contemporary philosophers? Um, what does he think about the Andrew Loki?" I have to admit that I'm not very well read of the contemporary philosophers. I perhaps went into Nietzsche and Dostoevsky way too early in my philosophy <laughs> life, but but I, I actually, if you look at my my bit of my collection of books behind me, the only books I've read before I went into Nietzsche and Dostoevsky was William Lane Craig and a bit of Andrew Loke, but I haven't read too much of either of them. So so to be honest, I have to say, like it has to be William Craig because because that's the only one of the only philosophers <laughs> I have to choose from. So yeah, I mean, yeah. it's like I, I I would love to read more people, but it's just like I, I've turned to Dostoevsky and I've kind of been trapped there for like the past like significant segment of my philosophy. So yeah, it, it has <laughs> to be William Lane Craig just because of the lack of alternatives. <laughs> William Lane Craig, 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 Craig,
Kyle also says, are you a physicalist or a dualist? dualist interest philosophy of mind? Do you have do you have thought on this? I I I would say I don't know enough about it to give any comments on it. Like I'm I, I'm not very familiar with uh, with these ideas, and yeah, I I just don't know enough about it to have a certain <laughs> idea. She's definitely not, not a physicalist. You know, we don't we don't want discussing. John has an interesting question. He said, I never understood why gender. Why a gender bender bias is desirable from a, from a Christian perspective? Is there a biblical basis for this, or is yours purely philosophical and scientific? Tiffany, getting into that idea of male and female and female gender identity that you talk about in your book here, Josh. Well, I think that it is both a biblical and a philosophical and scientific one. I think the philosophical and scientific case is just way it's just extremely powerful and it's almost undeniable. But at the same time, I think that there is a biblical basis in the sense that man created us male or female, and that's the way things are meant to be. We there's meant to be a male and a female for them to be united together in marriage. And, and that ties in basically all of biblical sexuality and all this issue is that the original plan is for male and female to be together in marriage. And a lot of people like to say, well, God didn't actively say, well, no homosexuality in the New Testament. But by saying that that is the only way, that is excluding all the other things on the side. If, if someone says the only way for marriage to be is with, between a male and a female, then that means that all the other things which are not part of that union is wrong and is and by affirming one side you deny all the other stuff right so mm -hmm. so i think that is definitely uh both a, a philosophical and a scientific one and also with biblical basis as well mm -hmm. yeah the male, the male thing is really really big in like in galatians where, where paul talks about the demand of male or female kind of like, like make that distinction to say well there is there isn't christ um and things like that so i think that's all the questions that up on the so, so we have about 10 more minutes here. If anyone has questions, feel free to add them. Josh, my question for you is why on earth would you, would you, Chelsea? Um, I just don't know. <laughs> well, I, I actually first, I actually supported Chelsea because of, I actually don't know why I started supporting Chelsea. You know, it's something <laughs> like I, I, I went to a British school like in year eight and like it was four or five years ago and it's, and, and someone just asked me what team did you support in England? And I, I didn't know what to say. So I just said Chelsea and, and now I support Chelsea, and that's kind of how it felt. And and I I don't regret supporting Chelsea at all. It's an absolutely amazing experience to be with the fans, and yeah, it's it's just absolutely amazing. So, so I don't have any rational reasons. I'm not going to provide a philosophical deductive argument for that, but but we'll see how. Yeah, how we just Chelsea fan because I'm a Chelsea fan, I guess. You did argue what clubs the twelve disciples be on. So so I mean that. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I did do that, and uh, it was quite interesting because I was thinking, well, what is the most charitable team, and what is the most, what's the team with the most people who seem to be just turning sides all of a sudden? And yeah, that was kind of quite interesting to think of, just a bit of fun on the live stream. Yeah, yeah. Um, one last thing I have for you is, what's most, what's, what are you researching now? That's the most interesting to you. Like you, like you debate reviews, views, and like, you do a lot on like on like causal physicism and stuff. Is that kind of like your top topic of study and like the philosophy right now? Now, or is, is like what's the biggest biggest thing for you right now? Yeah, right now I've done. I do a bit of research on the infinitude of the past and why the actual infinity cannot be realized in reality that's the main thing i've been working on in the philosophy aspect of things for like for quite a while i guess it was it's between it's basically that i mean i i try to do debate reviews whenever people ask me to do a debate review i have a discord server or someone says in the comments re like review this debate this week and i'll just go away on sunday watch the debate review it and then after that just wait for someone else to like recommend a debate for me to review but that's kind of how things go on my channel it's like they ask me what to do and i do it but 
and then also I do the Dostoevsky series. So it's just kind of between causal affinitism and and uh, Dostoevsky and Nietzsche. And that's kind of the two things I work with the most right now. I love the Dostoevsky series. I realized that I like listen to you to YouTube, uh, and I've I've been listening to stuff now, and I'm like, yeah, there's a lot of good stuff out here on this YouTube channel, channel um, realm of, of apologetics. For all. So it's a lot of fun. You put out a lot of content, so uh, lots of fun stuff at the apologetics for all YouTube channel. There's no other other kind of questions that we have here. Here we'll start to head towards wrapping things up, Josh. So do you have anything anything you want to want to bring up before we head out out here? Not much, really. I think we've said we've talked basically about the entire Christianity for all books, so I think that's all good. And we've done amazing Q and A, discussed all the stuff that I really love talking about. So that's all good. We have a question from Kyle. Who says, "What does Josh think about the, the discrete time entailment of of cofinitism?" He said, "That's why he rejects it." Well, I think that because I guess when I talk about cofinitism, the first thing I talk about is well, what is 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 time can time be infinite or can any quantity be actually infinite i just say no because i think that it leads to a lot of problems and a lot of paradoxes and and when you do have these paradoxes like it doesn't need to be um i mean of course discrete time they work more beautifully and more simply under discrete time but at the same time i think that you can work it under another any other theory of time or any continuous theory of time and, I think that works as well. Like it, it's not necessarily um, not necessarily you don't necessarily need discrete time, but but discrete time definitely makes it a bit more simple. If you got what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I get that. That and I'm it's a little above my, my head. I need to get on my causal finitism research grind a little bit, a little bit. Um, but Jonas, says, what are your on God, God, and his relationship to time? I, I can go first just to give you a break for a second, Josh. But I think I'd probably yeah. like to William Lang, like Greg Ward, God uh, is initially timeless, but then he, as he creates, he enters into time, which is, which is interesting. Uh, um, it's also really interesting. interesting. I did a, a show with Ryan Mullins recently, and like with divine simplicity, but someone asked, asked about it in time where he's where he's kind of like, oh, like God, God is time. Which is kind of interesting to think about. So I'm kind of like just not not really on this. I guess I definitely think in some sense God has to be in time, uh, especially like with, with the the buildings. Like it seems like God was interacting with us and such. Uh, definitely not a classical theist. But what do you think, Josh? Completely agree with you on that. I, I do think that God has to be in time right now because just like in order to interact with us, it it, it seems impossible for a timeless being to constantly interact at a physical timely fashion with the timed universe. Like it just seems absolutely impossible to yeah. have those two concepts together. So completely agree with you on that. I, I don't think that God is currently timeless. It's like it's like I've been reading the book of Isaiah as part of like my devotionals recently, and it just seems like God is like it's part part of like he's part of part of this journey with Israel. Like he's he's in this journey with them. Like he's like yeah, I'm punishing you and you're being stupid, stupid. Um, but I'm I'm with, I'm with you that it's gonna work work out. Like it just seems like he's not. It doesn't seem like a time timeless just reading the being the biblical text, and then, and then you know classical theism has all of its issues and stuff. But you know, so it, so it is weird to me. To me, um, well, I think that's all the questions we have, Josh. So uh, thank you so much. I encourage everyone to check to check out Josh's channel, Apologetics for All, where you'll find about about his love for Dostoevsky. That I can never pronounce his last name right. Right, um, and also also lots of other contents. And so, Josh, thank you so much for. Oh wait, wait, one more question. Um, Susan says says I would not have have be able to have experiences without time so how could he have a relationship in the trinity well i think that there's there's a difference between um interactions with a timed universe and a timeless interaction i just think that there can't be a like there can't be a 
dissymmetry there that you can have all time and then you don't have the universe underneath like you can have a timeless interaction i think but you can have a timeless interaction assuming that all entities within that relationship are timeless however if you have a timeless universe or a timeless a timeless like situation and also a universe beneath it then you have like a then you have what you call it. You have a dissymmetry, which leads to a disconnect here. Because if I, I can quickly, like imagine you do exist timeless existence, then you have, you can exist just three, you, you can exist, you can understand three beings or, well, I mean, I might get into some heretical views of the Trinity here, but the Trinity, it's just, it almost has to happen. So, yeah, but I mean, I guess it's just like you have the Trinity, let's just say you have the Trinity re relating to each other in a timeless fashion. They all exist and, and they just relate to each other in a timeless fashion. I think that's possible. However, if you have, imagine you have the father, the son, and then like the Holy Spirit and one of them's in time and the other one's time. So I don't think that's possible. Mm -hmm. Jonas says, says, if I was a theist, I believe that God is past infinite in time. Well, I mean, I I think you'd it's like as Christ, Christian in this theist, you, you did that God eternally exists, existed. There's no time prior to God. Um, but I don't know if that necessarily entails, entails past infinite, infinite universe assumes, uh, maybe not a B theory, but an A theory would be, be really weird. Um, but but kind of, you have any ideas on this, Josh? Well, I think that the... I also agree with Craig that the A theory is the best place to ground um, the problems with the infinite universe. With the infinite universe, in the sense that I can possibly imagine a a past infinite universe, which, or actually not a universe, but a a B theory infinite universe. I think has less problems than an A theory infinite universe. I think mm -hmm. that the moment there is indeed. The moment that there is indeed movement within that time, I think that completely just ruins the idea of an infinite past or infinite future. However, I do think that while there is still problems, I think a lot of paradoxes can apply to uh, a B theory time as well. I think that Grim Reapers, in some sense, can be applied to uh, B theory infinite universe and other paradoxes can be applied. I do think it's just highly improbable that god would be past infinite in time and it's just more reasonable to think that god is is just timeless and that just kind of solves your issue a bit more and it's just more reasonable and supported by biblical evidence i think yeah uh, someone that's done a lot of good work on this is this is mullins like god time um i'm hoping to have him on in the channel in a few months to give him a break and have him on to talk about this because he's because he's he he, he answers all the big scary great questions like how's God relate to time um, and things like that. So, so interesting to have on how future future. And I'd encourage you, encourage you to check his work looking up like, explanations with God and time. But Josh, thank you so much so much, man. It's been a lot been a lot of fun. I encourage everyone, everyone to turn in to apologetics for all. Thanks for having me. Yes, and thank you, thank you everyone who attended. Kyle, so Susan, Joe, everyone. I hope my mic was good. Uh, stumbled a little bit there, but we but we had one and and have every. Well, Ooh, I cannot talk. It's been a long day. Uh, have a good one, everyone, and God bless.